welcome back to Nerd Hours and our second and final part about extraterrestrial life. So last time we talked about the possibility of what extraterrestrial life is and what it could look like, as well as some theories about how life potentially spreads from planet to planet, otherwise known as panspermia. This time, still joined by Dan. Hello! I will be starting with extremophiles and what those are. Extremophiles are basically life, usually bacteria, that can survive absolute extremes on Earth. If you remember our talk last time, tardigrades are actually one such extremophile because they can survive in nearly any atmosphere in any place on or off of Earth. Exciting! That brings us to Dianococcus radiodurans. Ah, say that five times fast. This radiodurans, as I will be calling them for a little bit more ease, is a bacteria that's especially found in Chile's southern tip, and it exists in what is known as an ozone hole. The ozone layer on Earth is basically what protects us from the sun's ultraviolet radiation and the particularly bad UV radiation that can really give you cancer. Oof. This radiodurans bacteria is able to repair UV-damaged radiation to its DNA within a maximum of hours after the damage is done. And it actually has up to 10 copies of its genomes, which is 10 more than we have, really. Ah, wow. Very exciting. <laughs> Certain proteins basically monitor this bacteria's DNA, so when that UV radiation knocks something out of place, it's able to sense the change and just replace that part of the DNA. So this is something pretty unique to this species of bacteria, and there are very few kinds that have it, or really any DNA protecting abilities. Yeah, so why is there like an ozone hole in Chile? There's basically been a hole in the ozone layer for a really long time, and it originates in Antarctica. And the reason why it does that, instead of both Antarctica and the Arctic, is because it's mostly seasonal, and it also has to do with the different conditions of Antarctica being a lot colder and windier than in the Arctic, which helped create that ozone hole. This hole particularly opens up in the later months of the year, which for the southern hemisphere would be their spring. And without getting too nitty-gritty into the details, it has to do with the weather of everything turning from cold to a little bit warmer, causing the release of certain chemicals like chlorine and bromine. Mm. This causes the cold air that was in the atmosphere to rise up to that ozone layer, and that oxygen up there wants to shrink and get away back to its normalcy, so almost homeostasis for oxygen. Mm, don't say that word. <laughs> this ozone hole has gotten much larger because of the effects of extra greenhouse gases in the air, like carbon dioxide and methane and the like. You've probably heard either on the radio or in your chemistry class that greenhouse gases are super bad for the atmosphere because they target this ozone layer and let in more UV rays. But how does that work? It's because the ozone layer is named after the fact that it's made of basically pure oxygen. For comparison, what we breathe on the surface of the Earth is only partially oxygen and contains, say, a lot more nitrogen and carbon dioxide and a few other gases than a lot of people think. It's not just pure O2. Yeah, I think that that's impossible for us to breathe. It would be. It would slightly kill us. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Because of how oxygen molecules are structured, they block out a lot of that UV radiation and that high-energy rays from getting down to the Earth's surface. We stand. But when chemicals like carbon dioxide and methane are released, they trap a lot of heat down here in the lower atmosphere, which is why, for example, it snows a lot less or is warmer in places where it's colder, why everything tends to be a lot more extreme in terms of temperature. And that cold air moves up to the ozone layer, which is in our upper atmosphere. So they're scared of particles that are colder than themselves. 
basically, yeah, the oxygen is colder, it's not as effective as a barrier, and it shrinks away from those super cold spots. Because of the increase in the greenhouse gases, this hole in the Antarctic has stretched all the way up to even some populated areas of Chile within the past 20 years. Oh no. Yeah, it's not all that great. But another interesting thing to note is that when people stayed inside due to COVID over 2020, the ozone hole actually shrank quite a bit, confirming that greenhouse gases actually do play a pretty big part in how big that ozone layer gets and how it's affected by them. Well, we'll go schlorp. <laughs> All of these points with the extremophiles being able to live in places that are affected by UV radiation and being able to thrive in extreme conditions like extreme cold, extreme heat, and even extreme ultraviolet radiation, and mm -hmm. some even worse than that, they can thrive in these conditions that are far from what we're used to, even on our own planet. Nature said bacterium rights. And that is why single-celled organisms are slightly superior when it comes to other planets. Yeehaw! Speaking of other planets, actually, let's talk a little bit about life on Europa. So Europa is an icy moon that orbits Jupiter. Europa has quite a few factors that could be conducive to life. So the first important factor in this is the ice wall. Europa's surface is covered in an ice sheet that is 15 to 25 kilometers thick, or for American units, that's about 9 to 15 miles. Very thick. Quite a bit of a ways. This ice is also made up of what's known as oxidants, or molecules that have oxygen. It's theorized that H2O, water, oxygen that we breathe in carbon dioxide, may all actually be part of this ice. Most organisms on our planet either use oxygen or carbon dioxide to function, so while this is frozen, it is a pretty good sign that there might be some chemicals that are similar to here on Earth that might help facilitate life over on an ice moon. Similar to the ozone layer, oxidants also protect from UV radiation. Hmm. An experiment showed that only 10 centimeters of the theorized makeup of this ice wall could protect some of the most fragile parts of cells, like our Ooh. DNA, from UV radiation. Very exciting. The second important factor of this is geysers. Water plumes have been seen erupting from the cracks of Europa, and a lot of scientists theorize that this is due to underwater geysers. If anyone's a blue plant nerd like I am, you might recall that episode where they talk about some insanely rich microorganic life, so bacteria and the like, near thermal vents in our seas. Isn't there a theory that life on Earth started there? Yeah, I remember it being called the hydrothermal vents theory, but I think a lot of it can be linked to what's known as the primordial soup hypothesis, where these hot thermal vents with this rich chemical life were, over millions and millions of years, able to combine and make the building blocks for our DNA and a lot of other parts of the cell, which then eventually, due to the heat and some of the pressure and whatnot, then was able to form things like RNA as their genetic material, which is made up of pretty much the same thing as our DNA and form these actual cells and have life grow from there. So this is what's known as organic material. Talking about this thermal vents, there's actually a theorized similar makeup on Europa. With all of these vents having this rich chemical life, it could easily be possible that the primordial soup hypothesis actually did take place on this ice moon as well, with that Ooh. kind of warmer water underneath all of that ice. Another theory is that there are pockets of ocean inside these giant layers of ice. These would be very, very salty waters, kind of similar to our oceans, only I think saltier still. Ah, very exciting. And basically their mass with how large they are and their salinity would allow them to move through the ice and melt it, which would make that even saltier. Hmm. 
when the pressure between this water and kind of the top of that ice layer builds up enough, the water will erupt through the ice and cause the geysers that we see. So this would make the life on Europa slightly less plausible. However, it would still be entirely possible for life to exist in these pockets of ocean, and it would also change scientists' targets of where to look when they're searching for life. Ah. What would scientists be targeting? Well, there are actually quite a few missions to Europa planned or theorized based off of how our planned missions go. Ooh. So most scientists bet that if there's life anywhere else in our solar system, Europa would be the place to host it. Not Mars, some people say Io, but a lot of people say Europa. The mission to that moon itself would confirm theories of the sea and ice's makeup, as well as the cause of the geysers. And this mission is actually called Clipper, which will be launching in October 2024. Mm, so in just so very close. Yeah, a little less than three and a half years from now, I believe. Oh, yeah. It would confirm a lot about what we might know about the possibility of life on Europa, about these thermal vents. If Clipper goes well, we could easily send a probe directly to the moon rather than just orbiting around Jupiter and catching glimpses of these geysers as it goes by. Mm. But there would be quite a few ways to test the ocean for genetic material, like parts of DNA, which, if present, would actually prove life existed on the moon at least some point within the past couple hundred thousand years. Which seems like a long time, but again, in the scale of billions and billions of years of the universe, it would actually be incredibly recent and could give a little bit more evidence towards, say, the primordial soup theory that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. That would happen probably closer to the late 2030s, given that it takes quite a few years for anything that we send out to actually get to Jupiter and a few years more mm -hmm. to confirm all of our theories. So and we, to just gather data. Exactly. So we won't be getting any more definitive proof of this until about a decade or so from now. But as far as space goes, it's actually a fairly tight timeline, especially for something as far away as Jupiter. Yeah. So is there like a possible plan to send life to Europa if they don't find like native life? So not currently, no. That would most likely happen on a planet closer to us like Mars. And that's just because sending missions to Mars alone is only possible in a very short window every few years, and it takes over half a year just to get there. Mm. So getting to farther planets, like say Jupiter, is a lot riskier with a lot more time to get to and with a lot longer of a wait window for that to actually open. Yeah. So it can take anywhere from two to six years to get to Jupiter, which is a much longer time to ensure that any life that we send, even something as small as tardigrades, or even something like Dianococcus radiodurans, that would be a much longer time to make sure that it makes it safely to our destination. Yeah. We'd also have to have a much better idea of what Europa is made out of, so we don't accidentally have a landing machine that, say, gets stuck in the ice because it's so gosh darn cold, or a geyser that unexpectedly destroys the machine entirely. Oof. That'd be tragic. It really would, and I can easily see it happening if we did it yeah. now. <laughs> There's also a debate of whether we should introduce life to a new planet like that. Because we don't necessarily know that we'll recognize life on another planet when we see it, there's easily a possibility that by bringing a new non-human species, especially to that environment, we could inadvertently destroy life that we didn't even know existed. And oh, no. it's just like issues with invasive species here on Earth, especially way back in the day, when, for example, Europe would bring species and viruses uh, over <laughs> that would end up wiping out a lot of animal and, in some cases, human life. Mm -hmm over in that new environment, and we could easily be doing the same thing with other planets. 
And when it takes a long time to even send signals to machines and we don't have humans or ultra intelligent AI there to prevent a potential disaster, we could either nullify the experiment entirely and then have to wait another seven years or so in order to send another experiment there, which takes years to transport and create and loads of money as well. Yeah. If we don't just create life on a new planet that could involve in unforeseen and potentially destructive ways either to us or to that environment. Oh no. So not the best idea overall. Yeah. So like you mentioned earlier, like what about one of Jupiter's other moons, Io? Likely not. And that's more due to its more eruptive surface and its sulfurous air, which sulfur is very antithetical in a lot of ways to life. Not that we don't use it, but having so much of it in that air would make it very hard for life to exist. Mm -hmm. However, there are some scientists who, similar to saying life may be very different than what we are expecting, some believe if there is life on Io, it would entirely change our ideas of what life looks like, even more so than, for example, life on Europa. Yeah, so you probably wouldn't even, like, recognize life immediately. Exactly. As I know enough about astronomy, I, like, know that smaller celestial bodies tend to cool much faster than larger ones. Like, Mars is cooled down, so it doesn't have, like, a warm core anymore, really. How do Jupiter's moons, like, not have that? Yeah, so to go into that a little bit, what Dan was talking about there is that Mars was theorized to potentially have more Earth-like environments way back in the day. Yeah. And because the planet is much smaller than Earth and farther away from the sun, its core, or basically the center of the planet, ended up going cold, unlike Earth's, which is still very hot. Yeah. And that ended up, in effect, kind of cooling the planet and destroying a lot of the environments. Obviously, when you have something like, say, our moon or Jupiter's moon, they don't really have that core. But how is, for example, Io having actively erupting volcanoes? Or how does Europa even have moving water in any sense? Mm -hmm. So for some moons like Io, they're caught in between the gravity of Jupiter, which is absolutely massive, and some of its larger moons, Europa actually being one of them. This dichotomy of gravities are kind of pulling the innermost parts of the moon in particular in many separate directions, which is what causes its extreme geological activity. (laughs) Squish. Yep, and that squish is known as tidal heating. For moons like Europa, which are on the slightly farther ends of Jupiter's moon system, the tidal heating that it gets from the other moons around it is only enough to really keep its internal oceans from freezing rather than causing it to erupt in a bunch of volcanoes. Well, we can't all live the same way. I suppose not. (laughs) How would they prevent, like, more hardy bacteria and tardigrades and such from, like, hitching a ride on a later mission onto the surface and, like, screwing up the data. Yeah, so we talked a little bit about this in part one, about how some people who believe in the theory of panspermia or life planet hopping in a sense, that they believe in some cases we might have accidentally sent life to other planets. (laughs) Big oops there. Well, it should be noted that for tardigrades, for example, when these tardigrades were completely exposed to the elements of space, these tardigrades that were in hibernation were only able to be out there for about 10 days, and only two-thirds of them survived that period of time. So, you know, about a 66% success rate. It should also be noted that many of them also died soon after. Mm. But what is worth noting is that they were able to reproduce first. That's honestly the most important part, though. Exactly. However, given that a mission to Europa or even Mars takes significantly longer than 10 days, for tardigrades that really isn't an issue because when the tardigrades are in that hibernation state, they do not and cannot reproduce. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it's instant death. Oh, really? So it's kind of unlikely then. Yeah. Now, as for bacteria, 
as far as Mars goes, it is a little bit more possible. One of the bacteria that survived the longest in space is the one that I talked about early that can be found in Chile and the Antarctic regions, Dianococcus radiodurans. That one can survive for up to three years in space, which is incredibly impressive. We stand. But it should be noted that given that three-year window, it would be incredibly unlikely for even that sort of bacteria to survive an entire mission to Jupiter. It could probably survive one to Mars, which is an issue, given that Mars had Earth-like conditions back in the day, and that these bacteria are extremophiles that can survive even without protective atmosphere to shield from UV radiation. Yeah. But when it comes to taking things farther out in space, it's much less likely. We also know the genetic makeup and signs of said bacteria, and so there would likely be a process ensuring, and there already is, a process ensuring that hitchhikers don't then leave Earth. Hmm. There's always that faint possibility, however, and like the satellite station that chased and perceived extraterrestrial radio signals for nearly two decades before they figured out that it was coming from their own microwave. Me. There's always the possibility that we may be chasing down the origins of life that we actually put on the system ourselves. Oh, very exciting. Yes, I cannot wait for that day. (laughs) (laughs) Again, many who believe in panspermia think that we may have already unintentionally carried bacteria to other planets and satellites this way, which would both be a win for the fact that extraterrestrial life can exist, but also a loss because we technically didn't find it, we just accidentally, in a way, created it. Well, you take some, you lose some, you know? Exactly. So that wraps up our two-part podcast on the possibility of extraterrestrial life. When I usually talk about this in more casual conversation with other people, the points are often a little bit different than what a lot of people expect. And honestly, there's loads more to unpack. You could go a little bit more in depth into why Mars used to be a good candidate for where life could have thrived and why it no longer is, or places where it could exist outside of the solar system. But as my research mostly lies in Europa and extremophiles and panspermia, that was the heavier emphasis. And it's also what a lot of scientists are focusing on now, looking at things closer to home where it doesn't take years and years and years and a lot more guessing Mm -hmm. with our comparatively rudimentary technology than what we might have down the line. Shout out to AI. Yes, AI will play a huge part in finding life on other planets and everything going forward. But Mm -hmm. for now... This is the main topic of conversation. Thanks for listening, and we will see you in two weeks.